Welcome to Friendship with God with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Today's message and previous messages can be listened to or downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also obtain free resources from Tom Cantor and view our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org or call us at 800-247-3051, 800-247-3051. Tom Cantor also has a daily devotional verse that comes out each day by email and on Facebook. To receive this small daily devotional verse that Tom Cantor puts out, you can sign up at friendshipwithgod.org friendshipwithgod.org or find Tom Cantor on Facebook by searching for Tom Cantor and Friendship with God. Now here is our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor. Is a book, The Sword of Suffering. It's by Stephen Olford, Bible expositor, former pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in New York. And that book is an autobiography of his suffering. And it starts off when he is in the office of Dr. Kirby Smith who founded the Memphis Cancer Center, and Stephen Olford had gone to him because he had a lump under his left arm, and it was biopsied. So there it is. Stephen Olford, his wife Heather, his son David, and they're all in Dr. Smith's office, and Dr. Smith looks at Stephen Olford right in the eye, and he says, Dr. Olford, you have aggressive non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, cancer, and treatment must begin immediately. That was Jacob Hurd. No one said a word. It was absolute silence. No one said a word. That was, he held his peace. He was Harash. Until his wife Heather said, we haven't eaten since early this morning. Do you think we could slip out for a quick lunch? (laughs) And Dr. Smith says, yes, but hurry back. So again, silence. And the whole Olford family goes back to their hotel room to have lunch. Everyone harash, everyone held their peace, just like Jacob, till it was time for them to pray before eating. And Stephen Olford broke the silence with these words, Lord Jesus, we worship you. That was it. That's the right way. With those words, you have cancer, which by the way, he died from that cancer. His whole world was turned upside down. And Stephen Olford was in the middle of, of, at that time, directing the Stephen Olford Center for Biblical Preaching. He had a radio program, a TV program. And one statement, you have cancer, his whole world suddenly disintegrates. But he did the right thing. Jacob held his peace. Verse 5. So immediately after receiving the shocking news, like Jacob did, we just need to do what Jacob did. Go harash, go deaf and dumb, don't speak. Don't start to blame, just collect yourself. As Moses told Israel when they, were, when they were looking at their death, madly marching toward them in the form of all those Egyptians on chariots with their swords and the Red Seas in front of them in Exodus 14.10, Exodus 14.10, where it says, and when Pharaoh drew nigh, the children of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians marched after them and they were sore afraid. And the children of Israel cried out unto the Lord, and they said unto Moses, because there were no graves in Egypt. So what's this? This is Moses' fault. But thou hast taken us away to die in the wilderness. Wherefore hast thou dealt with us to carry us forth in Egypt? Is not this the word that we told you in Egypt, saying, let us alone that we may serve the Egyptians? For it would be better for us to serve the Egyptians than that we should die in the wilderness. 
And what did Moses say? Moses defended himself. Moses, no. Moses said unto the people, fear ye not, stand still. Stand still and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will show to you to this day. He's saying, harash, already. He's saying, stop, stop, stop speaking. For the Egyptians whom you have seen today, you shall see again no more, and the Lord shall fight for you, and ye shall hold your peace. Ye shall harash. Now, after we stood still and gone harash, then what? First, we have to remember every word of Psalm 46. Psalm 46, one through three. Every word. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, will not we fear, though the earth be removed, though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though the waters thereof roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with the swelling thereof, Selah. Especially those words, those are so important. The Lord, God, God, God is our refuge. Our hope is not from a church. Our hope is not from a group of people, although you're a wonderful group of people. Our hope is not from a counselor. Our hope is not from a friend. Our hope is from one person, God, God himself. He is a refuge. A refuge is a place you run into for shelter. The Lord is the person that we run to for shelter. As David said in Psalm 62.7, Psalm 62.7, in God is my salvation and my glory, the rock of my strength, and my refuge is in God. Trust in him at all times, ye people. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us, Selah. In Psalm 91.1, Psalm 91.1, he that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. I will say of the Lord, he's my refuge and my fortress, my God, in him will I trust. God is our refuge and strength, strength. Shocking news drains us of all strength. We don't have any more strength. We need strength. And that's when we find perfect strength in God. As it says about Joseph, when Jacob is on his deathbed and he comes to Joseph, he says, Joseph, I'm gonna sum up your life like this. In Genesis 49, 24, Genesis 49, 24, Joseph, his bow abode in strength and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob. From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel. We said it before, the bow, little guy, pulling back on a bow. He doesn't have the strength to pull the bow back. So God comes behind him and he says, keep holding it, little fella. Let me take this hand. Let me take that hand. We'll do it together. That's the picture. And then, Miriam sings at the destruction of the Pharaoh. Miriam sings in, in Exodus 15:2, and her words are, the Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation, he's my God. David says in 2 Samuel 22, 33, God is my strength and power, he maketh my way perfect. And Psalm 18, 2, Psalm 18, 2, the Lord's my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my buckler, the horn of my salvation, my high tower. Psalm 81.1, sing aloud unto God our strength. Psalm 30.15, thus saith the Lord, God, the Holy One of Israel, in returning and rest, shall you be saved in quietness and in confidence, in quietness, quietness, and in confidence shall be your strength. See, it's our decision. 
Are we gonna make God our strength or not? That's our decision. It's not automatic. It's not automatic. And we can see others who do not make God their strength. And David pointed that person out in Psalm 52, 7, Psalm 52, 7. Lo, this is the man that made not God his strength, but trusted in the abundance of his riches, in the greatness of the American medical society, (laughs) and strengthened himself in his wickedness. Very present help in time of trouble. That's how God is described. Very present help in time of, when it says that, very present help, it's emphasizing there's a very special presence of the Lord during trouble. That's the reason to harash or hold our peace when trouble comes to enable us to know that very special presence of the Lord, that he is a very present help in trouble, as it says in, in Isaiah 63.9, Isaiah 63.9. In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and his pity, he redeemed them. He bare them, carried them all the days along. The Lord is described in that verse in Isaiah, described in Psalm as a very present help in trouble. And he's called in Isaiah, the angel of his presence. So the Lord is very present in time of trouble. Just like in Nebuchadnezzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that was a bad day for them when they were thrown into the fiery furnace, right? That was a day of trouble when they were cast in there. The Lord's a very present help in trouble. What happened? Daniel 3.23, Daniel 3.23. These three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound in the midst of the burning fiery furnace. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astonished and rose up in haste and spake and said unto his counselors, did not we cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said unto the king, true, O king, He answered and said, lo, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire. They have no hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. How did he know what the Son of God's form was? He knew. So when this knowledge of his presence comes to us, it doesn't matter that our whole world is turned upside down. Fear leaves us. We're not going to fear the worst because what could happen to us, that's why it says in Psalm 46.2, Psalm 46.2, Therefore, will not we fear? And though the earth be removed, the mountains be carried in the midst of the sea, the whole world turns upside down. So by doing like Jacob did in verse five, the harash holding his peace, when we get the bad news, that enables God to take the fear away. It also enables the Lord to calm the anger and calm the blame. Now we're gonna see how the brothers of Dinah, they didn't harash, they didn't hold their peace. They blamed Shechem, They devised a fanatical murder of revenge. And the brothers are very much like the men who brought the woman caught very early in the morning. They caught her in the very act of adultery in John 8, 2, John 8, 2, where it says, and early in the morning, he came again into the temple and uh, all the people came to him. He sat down, taught them, and the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto a master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that she should be stoned. What sayest thou? Trap. This, they said, tempting him, they might have to accuse him, but Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he didn't hear them. Harash. And when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, oh, he says, he that's without sin among you, let him cast the first stone at her. And again, he sat down, he stooped down, and he wrote on the ground. 
And they which heard it being convicted of their own conscience went out one by one, beginning at the eldest until even the last. Jesus is left alone, the woman standing in the midst. Jesus lifts up himself, saw none but the woman, and he said unto her, woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, no man, Lord. She said unto her, neither do I condemn thee, go and sin no more. It was early in the morning. Morning burst into a bedroom, catches a woman of very active adultery. Strange that they didn't bring the man. <laughs> Just the woman, you know. So they bring this poor, terrorized, disheveled woman, and they told the, the accusation with stones in their hands, we can imagine, and the Lord just, he writes on the, the ground, garage like he didn't hear them. You ever wonder what he was writing? You ever wonder that? I don't know. <laughs> I think maybe he wrote the names of those men, and maybe he wrote the names of the women that they had committed adultery with. I don't know, or lust it over. Because the older men leave first. Why? Longer list for them. (laughs) Each man, each man has a monster of sin living inside of him. So these brothers, to take vengeance into their own hands, shows that they had not considered their own sinfulness and how at the time the Lord would have said to them, well, let him that's without sin be the first one to take up the sword and slaughter the town. By the way, This is the first recorded big trouble. He has a lot of trouble, but big trouble in Jacob's own family. And it's not the last one. And what we're gonna see in Jacob's family is just one big trouble after another. The history of Jacob's family does not support the fact that if you become a follower of the Lord, then you are guaranteed a happy, peaceful, trouble-free family. And that followers of the Lord will have a happy, peaceful, trouble-free family is also not supported by what the Lord said in Matthew 10, 34. Matthew 10, 34. Think not that I'm come to send peace on earth. I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I'm come to set a man at variance against his father, a daughter against her mother, the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's foes shall be they of his own household. And he that loveth father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. What happened in the first family? I don't mean the president. <laughs> the very first family in Genesis 4.8. Cain talked with Abel, his brother. Came to pass when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, his brother, and slew him. There was murder in the family. What happened in David's family? The family he grew up in. I mean, the family of his parents. 1 Samuel 17, 28, 1 Samuel 17, 28, Eliab, his elder brother, heard when he spake unto the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David. And he said, why comest thou down hither? With whom hast thou left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know thy pride, the naughtiest of thine heart. What happened to David's own family? 2 Samuel 16, 11, 2 Samuel 16, 11, David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my son, which came forth out of my bowels, seeketh my life. What happened to Job's family? We just read about it. Job 19.15. Job 19.15. They that dwell in mine house and my maids count me for a stranger. I'm an alien in their sight. What did Micah predict about families in the last days? What the Lord said in Matthew. Micah 7.6. The son dishonoreth the father. The daughter rises up against her mother. The daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies are the men of his own house. Now, we see how the end of verse five shows how Jacob did the right thing, and we say, bravo, Jacob, great. When you got the shocking news, you went harash. You held your peace. But unfortunately, the, the verse doesn't stop there because it goes on to say, Jacob heard, defiled Dinah's daughter. 
his sons were with his cattle in the field, and Jacob held his peace until they were come. Uh-oh. <laughs> I wish it didn't have those last four words, until they were come. This was Jacob's great mistake. Jacob leaned on his sons for help with this problem. How we wish it would have read in verse five, Jacob held his peace and he went to his altar. You know, the El Elohe Yisrael, and he got advice from God. But instead, it says, Jacob held his peace until they were come. That means Jacob relied on his sons to make family decisions take control. Jacob was crushed. Jacob was weak. He should have taken control of his home. And you can see this emphasis in verse five when it says his sons, his cattle. By saying that about Jacob, that the sons were his sons, and about his cattle, they're taking care of his cattle. It's showing that Jacob is the master there. He's the head of the home there. He's the head of the family. He was to be the authority to take control in the home. But unfortunately, we don't see Jacob taking control of the situation. And he yields to his sons. You know, Jacob would not have qualified for being a bishop, as it says in 1 Timothy 3.4. 1 Timothy 3.4. A bishop is one that ruleth well his own house having his children in subjection with all gravity. Jacob did not rule his own house here in this matter what happened and what to do about the defilement of Dinah. Jacob did not have his children in subjection and Jacob let his sons take over. Jacob was not like his grandfather Abraham as God described Abraham in Genesis 18, 19, Genesis 18, 19. For I know him, Abraham, as God says, I know Abraham. For I know him that he will command his children and his household after him. They shall keep the way of the Lord to justice and judgment, that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. Jacob did not command his children and his household to follow God's direction. So what we see in verse five is a Jacob who lets his sons take over. And we can see Jacob bearing his hearts to his son. What are we gonna do? What shall I do? Taking that posture, that was a big mistake. Because he yielded his command, he yielded his authority over to his sons. And just look what happened in verses 13 through 16, Genesis 34. Look what happened in verses 13 through 16. And the sons of Jacob answered Shechem and Hamer, his father, deceitfully and said, because he had defiled Dinah, their sister. Now watch this, their sister. And they said unto them, we cannot do this thing to give our sister, now watch this, the sister, so Dinah's a sister, to one that's uncircumcised, that a reproach to us. But in this will we consent to you. If you'll be, every male, if you circumcise, then we will give our daughters unto you, and we will take our daughters unto us, and we will be one with you, and be one people. Verse 13, it's very important when it says, the sons of Jacob answered. Verse 14, it's the sons of Jacob. What were they answering? What were they saying? The sons of Jacob are giving to... They're the ones who are agreeing to give Dinah to be married to Shechem. They went to the father. You know, Since when did they have the authority to give Dinah to be married? Hamar came to the father. The father of Dinah is Jacob to ask Dinah to be married. And since when did Dinah's brothers usurp the authority of the father and take that authority to give Dinah for marriage? And in verse 16, it was the sons of Jacob who were agreeing to give the daughters of the family to these Canaanites to be married. What? 
Since when do the brothers have this authority to take the daughters of Canaan for wives for the whole family? And the sons of Jacob, who were agreeing to give the daughters and to take the daughters, since when do they have this authority? And it's the sons of Jacob who were agreeing that Jacob's family should become one with the Canaanites. What? Since when do the brothers have the authority to dissolve Jacob's family into a oneness with the Canaanites? So what we see in verses 16, 14 and 16 are the sons of Jacob usurping the authority, stealing the power, stealing the right to make decisions for Dinah's future and for the future of the whole family of Jacob. And what's Jacob doing? He's just standing by. He's just letting it all happen. Jacob is sitting there saying, I'm tired. It's just not worth the fight. This is just, I don't want to die on this hill. You know, I yield, take it, my God-given place to lead, guide, rule, command my home. I yield to my sons. They're just stronger than I am. I just am not up for this fight. How many men have sadly taken the same position as Jacob and said, it's just not worth the fight? My wife is stronger than I am. Just let her take the rule and command of the house. I yield it to her. Or it's just not worth the fight. My children wear me out. They're stronger than I am. Just let them do what they want to do. I yield to them. That's what Jacob did here. And God watches every husband. And he's looking for that special husband that's like Abraham. And he can say about that husband what he said about Abraham in Genesis 18, 19. I know him. He'll command his children and his household after him. But God couldn't say this about Jacob because he's watching here as Jacob's sons walk all over Jacob. And in this case, it was all about what are we going to do about Dinah? And because Jacob yielded to his sons and let them get away with murder, literally, Jacob set the stage for the next step when those same sons would throw their own brother Joseph into a desert pit of death and then pull him out to sell him as a slave into Egypt, then lie to their father about a wild beast who killed Joseph. Why did those same brothers take the law into their own hands with Joseph and make these life and death decisions? Because years before, those same brothers made life and death decisions, who made life and death decisions about Joseph, those same brothers took the law into their own hands and made life and death decisions about this city in Canaan. Why did those same brothers not fear walking all over their father to bring him this coat that the father had made for Joseph that they had ripped up and poured blood over it? Because years before, those same brothers who did that with Joseph, they walked over their father by usurping authority about what to do about Dinah. Jacob had no idea that by yielding and allowing his authority to be usurped by his sons at this time with Dinah, that Jacob was sowing the seeds for his son to rise up and exercise authority over the life and death of Joseph. What this is showing us is that husbands, fathers, as the loving head of the house, it's important to not yield authority. Worse things will happen if it's done. Let's pray. Father, Thank you, Lord, for taking all this time to put all these words in your book for us to look at and to understand and to learn from. In Jesus' name, amen.
Another wonderful day studying the Bible with our Bible teacher, Tom Cantor, here on Friendship with God. Don't forget that today's message and previous messages can be listened and downloaded for free at friendshipwithgod.org, friendshipwithgod.org. You can also go online to find free resources from Tom Cantor and our online bookstore at friendshipwithgod.org. You can also find Tom Cantor on Facebook, and you can also go to friendshipwithgod.org to sign up for his daily devotional verse. Now, Tom Cantor is also the founder of Israel Restoration Ministries. You can visit that website at israelrestoration.org, or you can write Tom Cantor at P.O. Box 711-330, P.O. Box 711-330, Santee, California. That's S-A-N-T-E-E, Santee, California, 92071. Or you can email Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Tom Cantor at friendshipwithgod.org. Or for more information about Tom Cantor and Friendship with God and Israel Restoration Ministries, call us at 800-247-3051. Do you believe God created the heavens and the earth? Then come celebrate Creation Day on Saturday, November 5th from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. at the Creation and Earth History Museum in Santee, California. This is a Christian family festival event with games, rides, contest prizes, fair food, petting zoos, animal shows, super science experiments for kids, plus life-size dinosaurs at our brand-new Dinosaur Gardens exhibit, plus world-renowned speakers, Ray Comfort, Tom Cantor, Eric Hoven, Jay Siegert, and more. Free admission to the museum and all speaking engagements are free for your family and the entire church family. The Creation Earth History Museum is located off Highway 67 and Woodside Avenue North in Santee next to the Santee Drive-In. Bring your family and friends Saturday, November 5th and strengthen your faith at Creation Day, San Diego's Christian Family Festival event. For more information, call 619-599-1104, 619-599-1104 or creationsd.org creationsd.org.